Both of these developments together are extremely significant uh, because they impact upon literally hundreds of thousands of Australians who've been affected by the robo-debt scheme. This is Law for Community Workers On The Go, a podcast for community and health workers. In this episode, I'll be talking to Nicola, a civil lawyer from the Legal Aid New South Wales Government Law Team. Nicola will be giving us an update on RoboDebt and the events that have happened since our RoboDebt Part 1 podcast, which we recorded in December 2019. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land we are recording on today and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. My name is Natalie and I work with the Legal Aid New South Wales Community Legal Education Team. Many of our listeners assist people who are on Centrelink and who also may have had what is known as a robo-debt. So this is a really important topic for us to all get our heads around. We are very fortunate today to be joined by Nicola Cannon to give us the latest developments in robo-debt in August 2020. Hi Nicola. Hi Natalie. Nicola, do you want to start by giving us a recap of the previous episode, a bit of a RoboDebt basics? Absolutely. Um, It's a very good starting point to just cover off on where we were at when we spoke in December 2019, because some big developments had happened then and some even bigger developments have happened since. Um, So when we spoke last, uh, it was just after um, the successful court case in Amato versus the Commonwealth that was run by our wonderful colleagues at Victorian Legal Aid. And that case um, challenged robo-debt and ultimately found that um, debts that were calculated solely based on income averaging were unlawful debts. Um, Shortly after, well, actually shortly before the outcome in that case was announced, the federal government also announced that they would no longer be raising debts that were solely based on income averaging and that they would conduct a review into the debts that they had raised using this method. The other thing that we covered off last time was there was um, an announcement that Gordon Legal, who is a law firm based in Victoria, would actually be running a class action about robo-debt. So last time we spoke, it was very much in the early stages and they were asking people to register their interest. But we've got some updates on that that we can discuss today as well. You're listening to Robo-Debt Podcast Part 2. If you haven't yet listened to Part 1, please go back and listen to Robo-Debt, the full story or the shortcut version recorded on the 6th of December 2019 in the podcast Law for Community Workers on the Go. So today we're going to be talking about what's happened since, I guess, December 19 to now, to August 2020, and what's going to happen in the future. Exactly. So there are two big things that I think um, have happened since that we'll talk about today. The first one is that the Gordon Legal Class Action was commenced um, and it's moved quite far since um, December last year. So it is now actually listed for a hearing before the, the court um, starting in September this year. Um, and it's because it's a big class action, it's going to take around three weeks for the court to hear that case. And we'll get into a little bit more detail on um, the class action a bit later on. But the second and, and sort of related thing that we'll talk about today is that 
um, the government has also since announced that they're going to be issuing refunds to people who have had robo-debts and who've paid money back to Centrelink towards those robo-debts. So both of these developments together are extremely significant uh, because they impact upon literally hundreds of thousands of Australians who've been affected by the robo-debt scheme. So um, two very exciting developments that we can talk about. Great. And before we go on, can you give us a bit of a refresher on what classifies as a robo-debt? Because we're not talking about all Centrelink debts here. Is that right? That's exactly right, Natalie. It's a really important thing for us to um, maybe say up front is that it's important to understand that not every Centrelink debt is a robo-debt. Robo-debt is a very specific type of Centrelink debt, but it is one that has affected a lot of people in the past few years. Um, So robo-debt was a program that Centrelink started in around 2015 where they started automating the process of identifying um, sort of discrepancies or gaps between the income that a person has reported to Centrelink across the financial year and then what they've reported to the tax office in that same financial year. And so um, what would happen is if there was a mismatch between those two figures, then Centrelink would average out the, the money that the person had um, reported they'd earned to the tax office, they'd average it out across 26 fortnights of the year and assume that that's what the person earned regularly each fortnight, sorry, and a debt would automatically be raised on the basis of those numbers. Um, and maybe it's important to point out there as well, it's it's not the data matching part of that program that was new. The data matching had been around for a while, but what was new was the automating of the raising of the debt. So a lack of human oversight before a person gets a notice telling them that they owe a Centrelink debt. Um, now we call it robo-debt and the whole sector has kind of um, referred to it as robo-debt for quite a long time and there's been plenty of media around this phrase robo-debt but Centrelink themselves actually refer to it as their income compliance scheme. So um, it's, it's important to know that maybe if you've seen clients who are getting letters about this, it's not going to be called robo-debt on the letter, it will say income compliance scheme. So where we got to with those robo-debts is that um, the court case in Amato and then the government also has since acknowledged that um, this process of calculating a debt based on averaging of a person's income rather than what they actually earned in a particular fortnight can give false readings on a a debt um, and is an unlawful basis for Centrelink to ask somebody to repay a debt. That's kind of a summary of what robo-debt is, but sometimes it's helpful to think about robo-debt in terms of what it's not as well so that people can easily identify whether their debt is likely to be a robo-debt or not and so there's two things to point out there one is that robo-debts really need to be a debt that relates to a person's income so if for example you're seeing someone who's got a debt because Centrelink has decided maybe they weren't eligible for a particular payment or um, you know Centrelink's found they were in a member of a couple relationship with someone and they get a debt because of that that's not going to be a robo-debt. It's very much about this issue of what the person was reporting in terms of fortnightly income. And the other thing is that family assistance payment debts are also not going to be robo-debt. So that's things like family tax benefit. Um, And even though those debts can be connected with a person's income, um, they don't involve this, this process of averaging income over fortnights. And so If it's a family tax benefit debt, you can also rule out the idea that it's going to be a robo-debt. Thanks, Nicola. So we might come back now 
to talking about this class action. So you mentioned that Gordon Legal, a law firm in Victoria, are running a class action. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, So the class action, to give a little bit of background, what the RoboDebt class action is about is it's like a a vehicle to help people who have received RoboDebts by by trying to get some compensation for those people for um, the the distressing experience that robo debt has caused them, and also to try and get people the money back that they have repaid. Um, since the government has now agreed to refund money that's been paid towards robo debts, um, that part of the proceedings falls away a little bit, but there is still this issue of compensation, and so. A class action, for anyone who doesn't know so much about them, it's it's a representative proceeding. So what that means is there, there are sort of four main plaintiffs in this case whose circumstances are a good representation of the experience of people who've received a robo-debt and they are kind of the lead plaintiffs and then there is um, the class action is made up of a whole bunch of group members who are other people who've received robo-debts and who fall into... Um, a, a particular category and if the decision is favourable those people will get the benefit of the decision and if the decision is unfavourable then those people won't get the benefit of the decision. So it might just be useful for us to talk a little bit about who are these group members, who are the people that um, are potentially going to benefit from this class action um, and it's really, it's the same sort of people that we described before when we were talking about what a robo-debt is. So it's the class is defined as anyone who was getting a primary Centrelink payment. Um, that is, you know, disability support, pension, new start, parenting payment, but not those, not things like family tax benefit. Um, so getting a Centrelink primary payment and at any time after 2015, Centrelink sent that person a letter asking them to check or confirm their employment information. And then after that process, wrote to the person telling them that they owed Centrelink a debt, that they owed Centrelink some money. And the person has either paid back some or all of that debt. And that might be because they've paid it through a payment plan with Centrelink, or it might even be because Centrelink's done something like garnishy their tax refund. Um, If they tick those three boxes, they are a member of the class. The easiest way for a person to actually know if they are part of the class action or not, or, or if you speak into clients and, and they're, you know, not sure, is to ask them about whether they got sent an opt-out notice uh, by Centrelink. Because in May this year, the court asked Centrelink to send out opt-out notices to everybody who falls into that group. Um and there were 617,000 of those notices issued. So we're talking about a very, very big group of people who are affected by this class action. Now, if, if people haven't had experience with class actions before, and, and at Legal Aid, we really don't have a lot of experience with class actions either, um, an opt-out notice is um, basically a notice that the court requires um, Centrelink to send to a person to allow them the opportunity to either stay in the class action or opt out of the class action. Um, people had until the 29th of June this year to choose to opt out of the class action. So anyone who hasn't already taken that step and opted out, but who did get one of those letters is now part of the class. Um, and I don't think that's something that clients should be overly concerned about because really what it means is if um, 
the class action is successful, then there's a possibility that they might get the benefit of that. So just to clarify, Nicola, if somebody got an opt-out letter and didn't really realise what it was or they didn't do anything about it, they are now part of the class action. That's correct. Um, and it's, it's too late really for them to opt out now. They are part of the class action. And that, um, that applies whether or not they've registered with Gordon Legal. So Gordon Legal are encouraging um, people who haven't opted out and who are part of the class to get onto their website and register. Um, but even if a person hasn't registered with Gordon Legal, if they tick those three boxes, if they got the opt-out notice, they are still part of the class. But with the one thing, I guess one thing that um, clients that we've spoken about who contacted us when they were getting those opt-out notices that they're a little bit concerned about is what do I have to pay? Is it going to cost me money to be involved in this class action? And the answer is that a person doesn't have to pay anything up front to be part of the class action. And if the class action is unsuccessful, they're also not going to have to pay anything. The only circumstances in which a person who forms part of that class will have to pay something is if the court orders that they have, if the action successful and the court orders that they have to, and then what would happen is some of that money would come out of the overall pool of compensation that is then able to be spread among the participants. Um, so people don't need to be feeling, you know, if you've missed the opportunity to opt out, you don't need to be feeling anxious or distressed about the fact that somehow this is going to cost you money up front. Great. So the class action is one part of, of what's what's happening. And then you mentioned, Nicola, that there's also this government um, announcement that they are going to refund people. So how does that fit in with the class action or how does that work first? So it, it came, it's probably the thing that um, maybe people listening to this podcast are most interested in because it's a huge announcement, but it came a little bit after the class action. So we thought we'd talk about, you know, things in the sequence that they happened. But I have no doubt that things like the case in Amato and also the class action are, are things that have put a little, you know, mount, created mounting pressure on the government to really look at this scheme and, and make some changes. Um so it was on the 29th of May this year, the government announced that it's going to refund um, 470,000 robo-debts to 373,000 people. So what that means is the gap in numbers there is that there may some, be some people who have multiple robo-debts. In terms of who will actually be eligible for a refund, um, it's people who got one of those income compliance debts on or after July 2015. So got a letter, you know, about their income being mismatched and then got a letter saying that they owed Centrelink money after July 2015. And it's a debt that was raised using that ATO income averaging process and the person has repaid either some or all of that debt in that time. Unfortunately, there are some people who have probably been affected by this robo-debt scheme, though, who will not be eligible for a refund. And it's probably worth pointing out who those people are as well, because this is something that's a little bit confusing about the scheme. Um, and that is that there are a, 
a group of people who when they got those letters from Centrelink asking them to provide information about their earnings, um, diligently went away and got all of that information for Centrelink and, and sent them all of the payslips from the different employers they'd been working with. And then Centrelink used that information to recalculate the person's debt actually using their actual earnings. Um, and in that scenario, even though that person started out with the robo-debt, what they now have is no longer a robo-debt because that income averaging component has gone away and has been replaced by a debt that's calculated using proper numbers. So unfortunately, those people won't be getting a refund because Centrelink's position is that they now had a lawful basis for raising that debt against the person. And the other cohort that, that won't see refunds is there's, there's another group of people who got those letters from Centrelink and haven't really engaged in the process at all. So haven't provided information to Centrelink, but also haven't paid anything back to Centrelink. And obviously, if you haven't paid anything towards the debt, then um, you're unlikely to get a refund um, of that money as well. Okay, so now what do people need to do to claim their refund? Great question and maybe the most important thing that we'll talk about today. Um, so the answer to that question depends on whether the person is currently on Centrelink payments or not. For clients you might be working with who are currently on Centrelink payments, the answer is that they don't have to do anything. The, the refund will be automatically processed and received into their bank account. If they're not sure if they're going to be eligible for a refund or not, what they can do is log on to their MyGov. And if they go into the payments and claims section, there's a little box they can select called income compliance refund query. And that will tell them whether or not they, are, they should expect a refund, but they don't have to do anything to get that refund. And the government has already started paying the refund. So it, it started in July um, and, and anticipates that most of the refunds will be made by November this year. Um, part of the reason for the delay, you know, the, the fact that it may take until November to pay the refunds is that a really important group of people that we need to think about are people who might have paid off some or all of a robo-debt but who are not currently receiving a Centrelink payment because there is a risk that those people's um, bank account details might be out of date with Centrelink. They might not have been on payments for a few years now. So really the, the most important message for us to get out there is if you've won Centrelink previously but not now, you need to get onto MyGov um, and check that Centrelink has your correct bank account details so they can actually pay the refund to you. And there's a special way to do this for this particular robo-debt process. So the person just needs to log on to MyGov and then there's a, a task called a refund pending task they can complete and they have to complete that with their correct and current details for their refund to be processed. So Nicola, if somebody's robo-debt is refunded, does Centrelink then go back and calculate their actual debt? That I think is the biggest question of this whole situation and one that I don't think we know the answer to yet. But it's a really important thing for us to cover off, which is that what Centrelink is saying is that we will refund people that, that money they have paid towards robo-debts and we will also zero the debt. So basically reduce the debt to zero. Um, and there is this question about, well, does that mean 
I'm never ever going to owe that money to Centrelink and I don't think we can quite say that yet because I think Centrelink does have quite wide powers um, under legislation to do things like contact people's employers and actually get the payslips that they would need to calculate the debt on actual numbers and on a lawful basis and it's an important thing to maybe say about robo-debt that um, you know, often there can be a mismatch in the cases that we see between what a person has reported to Centrelink and to the tax office. And sometimes someone might owe some money to Centrelink. The issue is about making sure that whatever they owe is calculated correctly. We really don't know at this stage um, whether whether the government is going to spend more resources given robo-debt has already been such a such costly exercise for them in actually taking those steps and going through and getting people's um, payslips for their employees because I suspect it's something that would cost a great deal more to do. So at this stage, we haven't heard any indication that it's going to be happening, um, but also something we probably can't conclusively rule out just yet. So, Nicole, I guess at this time around COVID-19, things are a bit different for, for some people. So, is there anything particular happening around um, around debts, Centrelink debts and COVID-19? There is a bit of a change happening with COVID-19 that's worth explaining because it might have confused some people, particularly if they're dealing with robo-debts at the same time. And that is that Centrelink has done like a general debt pause while COVID is happening. So initially they've suspended um, most of their debt raising and debt recovery activities until October 2020. And it may even be depending on how COVID goes that we see an extension to that date as well. Um, the only real exclusion to that is Centrelink has said it doesn't apply to serious non-compliance debt. So if people are dealing with big um, Centrelink debts where maybe there's a there's an angle, you know, even a possible fraud angle to the debt, then they might find that they're still being chased by Centrelink for a debt. But most of the debts that kind of we are seeing at Legal Aid um, are ones that repayments are being put on hold um, during this time. So a person can have a non-robo-debt, Centrelink debt, and still not have to pay anything towards it at the moment because of COVID. So Nicola, people who've been paying attention in this podcast might have noticed that some you said some big numbers, and I'm going to repeat those now. So it was 617,000 people are eligible for the class action, but... So 470,000 people are eligible for a refund. How can you explain these two numbers and why they are different? And also, I guess that flows on to the relationship between the government refunds and the class action. Um, you have definitely been paying some good attention, Natalie. Thank you. It's a um, it's it's important. It's an important point because it helps us to explain what the what the relationship is between this government's announcement on refunds and the class action. Because one of the questions we now get asked a lot at Legal Aid is, well, if the government's going to repay everyone's debts, um, then what's the class action about? And the class action con continues despite the government's announcement on refunds. And that's really for two reasons. Um, one is that, as you just pointed out, the class for the class action is 617,000 people, but the, ref the, the government's refunds is they're going to refund 470,000 debts to 373,000 people. So there is a big gap and the gap is that 
it's really those people we spoke about before. So the people that actually have since um, had their debts calculated using actual earnings or people who didn't actually engage in the in the process and pay money back to Centrelink at all, they're not going to benefit from refunds, but they may well be people who see the benefit of the class action. And that's because through the class action, Gordon Legal is not just seeking for people to have the money paid back to them that they paid to Centrelink. They are also arguing that the government was negligent in its administration of this robo-debt scheme and therefore that people should be given compensation for the pain and suffering that robo-debt has caused them. And so that means that even that category of people who have since um, had their debts recalculated, they are potentially still people that have um, suffered a great deal of distress through this process. Um, and so that is why the class action is still going ahead and is still important even despite the refunds. Um, and maybe to give a, a client example of a sort of a common story that we see at Legal Aid and, and one particular client that I recall speaking to um, was a lady who she got a letter in December 2016 telling her she owed about $6,000 to Centrelink and the debt related to um, a time in 2013 where she'd been working on a casual basis for like four different employers at the same time. So it was a few years ago um, and she went off and kind of tried to chase down all of the paperwork from all of those different employers. But it's pretty hard when so much time has passed and so and when she had so many different employers at the time. So she got as much as she possibly could. She gave it to Centrelink and um, they used that information, recalculated the debt and it came down to 2,700. So less than half of what it initially was. Um, but even after that process, she was like, how, you know, how can it change so much? This is confusing. Um, so she appealed the debt to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and they also looked at the documents and went, we actually can't figure out exactly what this woman owes. And they sent it back to Centrelink and said, Centrelink, you have to use those powers you have to go and get the rest of her payslips from her employers and figure out exactly what this debt should be. So they did that and then the debt changed again and it went back up to $4,200. Um, now the woman has since paid off that debt but when we spoke with her um, she talked to me about the fact that uh, you know this is a woman who had post-traumatic stress disorder and that this process of um, engaging with Centrelink over uh, you know a couple of years to get this issue sorted out and the fact that there was the uncertainty of it kind of going up and down and changing and changing all the time um, was really exacerbating her mental health conditions and I remember she said to me you know it's, it's been really hard for me to find anybody to talk to about this debt. I really haven't been able to talk to my friends because I feel a level of shame about what has happened. You know, she really felt like she had done something wrong, but really the process was against her from the start. And so for someone like her, unfortunately, this client isn't going to get a refund of her debt because she has now gone through that process and it has been calculated on a lawful basis. But she's the sort of person who's experienced a great deal of distress from this process and who might hopefully, if the class action is successful, see some compensation getting paid to her for that. And we don't know yet, Nicola, what type of compensation people might get. There's no indication of how much people might get as a result. No indication at this stage and um, 
this is where I guess legal aid doesn't have a great deal of expertise in class actions and how that process works. But my sort of general understanding is that if there is an announcement and compensation, then people will have to then sort of individually sort of put forward their own little case about how much compensation, you know, or what distress they've suffered so that they can get part of that pool of compensation. So um, there's still a bit of a way to go on that. Um, in terms of when we might hear from the court, so at the moment the case is listed for three weeks starting in September, um, but COVID is potentially having a little bit of an impact. So I'm not sure if we'll see it go ahead in that time frame. Um, and then that probably means because it's quite a big and complex case, we're probably looking at like towards the end of this year or maybe even tipping over into next year before we get a decision from the court in terms of the class action. So it looks like we might need to do a RoboDebt Part 3 podcast. <laughs> 2021. It's, it's sounding yeah. very much like it. Yeah. All right, Nicola, thank you. This has been a really, really informative and entertaining. I've had a great time. But before we go... Um, We'd like to let community workers listening know, I guess, what the key takeaway messages are. So what would your key messages be to people listening to this podcast? Okay, so I think the biggest, biggest, biggest and most important key message is checking with clients you're working with, particularly the ones who aren't currently on Centrelink payments, but who might have been in the past and strongly encourage them to get onto MyGov and check the details, fill in that refund pending task, because what a shame it would be if there are people out there who are entitled to these refunds that aren't actually getting to see them. So that is the number one takeaway. Um I think the number two and three takeaways are really about where people can go to get a little bit more information. So um, the first thing is if you're working with clients who are in doubt about whether they're, you know, whether they're entitled to a refund, whether their debt is a robo debt, whether they have a different type of Centrelink debt that they want to know some more information about, if in doubt, encourage them to seek some legal advice, either from um, legal aid or from one of the community legal centres around the country that specialises in social security law. So, for example, in New South Wales, we have the Welfare Rights Centre. The other um, suggestion in terms of um, where to refer people if they're coming to you with questions um, is that if they're coming to you with questions about the class action, um, the very best place to go for more information about that is to Gordon Legal. And actually, Gordon Legal have done a fantastic job of putting a frequently asked questions page up on their website that goes into a lot of detail about all the different scenarios that people might have questions about and how this class action might affect them. And actually, when I looked on the website today, there are also even videos they've done. So, they, you know, they're catering um, to clients from sort of you know, all different kind of backgrounds and reading abilities and things like that. So, you know, if your client might not be able to read that language in English, maybe watching a little video is going to give them the information they need. Um, so that is a very good place for clients to go and get a bit more information as well. Thanks, Nicola. And we've got links to the Gordon Legal, uh, Victoria Legal Aid RoboDebt page. All those links are in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thanks, Nicola. I'll see you next time. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode and found it useful, 
please share it with your organisation, colleagues and communities. Until next time, thanks from all of us here at the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid New South Wales.